Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for August 19th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm very excited to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, which is used each Friday and features commentary from appellate practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding appellate issues of salience. We've got two terrific guests this week. One will discuss a recent California Supreme Court ruling with major implications for employment attorneys and a very likely ticket to the U.S. Supreme Court. The other guest will continue our summer SCOTUS preview series today regarding a matter that relates to a bedrock principle of American democracy, the separation of church and state, and individual states' abilities to maintain that separation in the manner they deem best. First, Rex Heinke, a partner with Aiken Gump, will visit to discuss the case of Sanquist v. Lebo Automotive, which was decided out of the state high court in July, and which addresses a massively important employment question. Namely, Where an employment contract is ambiguous, who should decide the question of whether class claims may be arbitrated, the court or the arbitrator? In its first 4-3 split since last January, the court decided that, according to principles of state contract law, that question, at least in this case, should go to the arbitrator. The three-justice minority, whose opinion was penned by Justice Leandra Kruger, noted that this decision is contrary to ones made by other state and federal courts, and that the ruling likely awaits a reversal at the hands of the country's high court. Mr. Heinke will analyze the opinion, its impacts, and the changes that Justice Kruger's prediction will be realized. Our second guest is Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group in San Francisco. He'll continue our SCOTUS summer preview by considering the case of Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Polly, which implicates an absolute bedrock constitutional principle, namely that to best engender the healthy functioning of the state and religion that the two should exist relatively untangled. Weighty as that question sounds, the actual case here began with a dispute over playground equipment, specifically recycled car tires repurposed as pellets to create soft surfaces under monkey bars and swings and such. Trinity Church, which runs a school with a religious mission statement applied to a Missouri state program that subsidized for certain nonprofit schools the cost of such safer playground materials. The state denied Trinity's application based on its religious affiliation and based on a Missouri constitutional provision that forbids state treasury money from issuing to religious institutions. Trinity argues this refusal on the basis of religious affiliation represents both an equal protection violation and an unconstitutional prohibition on the church members' rights to freely exercise their faith. Missouri contends its denying subsidies merely upholds a foundational American principle that the state shouldn't support any particular religion. Mr. Foyer will help us dissect both sides' arguments and offer his thoughts on how the case might turn out. But first, and as always, I'd like to remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to the show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Rex Heinke. We're very happy to be joined once again by Rex Heinke. Mr. Heinke is a partner at Aiken Gump and is the co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and appellate practice. Mr. Heinke, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. So we're chatting today about the California Supreme Court case of Sanquist v. Lebo Automotive decided a few weeks ago in July in a very important ruling for employment law and issues of arbitration, and specifically class arbitration. The plaintiff here, Mr. Sanquist, had been an employee at at a car dealership and had worked there for several years, but after he quit or was sort of forced out, he brought race discrimination claims against the, the dealership. And I believe that his individual claims were compelled to arbitration, but the trial court dismissed his 
his class claims. But after that, I believe the, the appellate court said that the trial court perhaps should not have decided that question as to whether the class should have been certified, that perhaps it should have actually been been the arbitrator. Um, so now tell me what exactly the, the Supreme Court was deciding then. Is that, that, is that question who should have made that decision? Yes, the Supreme Court was deciding who should decide, a court or an arbitrator, whether an arbitration agreement provided for class-wide arbitration. Okay, so as between the court and, and the arbitrator, what um, before we get to what the Supreme Court said on that question, could you tell me why it's such an important question to begin with? Obviously, many millions of dollars have been poured into this litigation over several years. So um, you know, why, why is it such a big deal? Who decides this question? Well, I think the reason that uh, employers, <clears throat> uh, and this would apply also to uh, companies that provide consumer products and so on, the reason they're concerned about an arbitrator deciding whether their arbitration agreement provides for class-wide arbitration is because of the lack of review of decisions by arbitrators. Essentially, a decision by an arbitrator is virtually unreviewable. Now, like everything, there are a few exceptions, but unless the arbitrator basically says, I know this is the law and I'm not going to follow it, you're not going to be able to ordinarily reverse the arbitrator's decision on appeal. Uh, in contrast, a decision by a judge is going to be subject to uh, review, de novo review, if the issue is legal, uh, substantial evidence review, if it's just a question of what evidence there is in the record. So I think the real problem that people see is the lack of review of an arbitrator's decision. Then with that setup, could you tell me what the Supreme Court ruled as to who should make the decision in this case? What the Supreme Court said was um, this decision should go to the arbitrator. It shouldn't be made by the court because there was a broad provision in the arbitration agreement that essentially said all claims related to employment at this automotive dealership should be decided by arbitration. The clause made no reference expressly to class-wide arbitration. It neither said that it should happen or shouldn't happen. But the court interpreted that broad clause to provide for class-wide or to provide that the issue of class-wide arbitration should go to the arbitrator. And in so doing, upheld the the second appellate district's ruling. I know there's from reading the filings and some of the coverage, there's a, a big point of contention over whether this this question, who should decide class certification, the arbitrator or the trial court. Um, whether that's a, a procedural question or a, a threshold one. Uh, could you describe to me what the distinction is between the two types of questions and, and why does that matter so much for the legal analysis here? Sure. Sometimes the question is phrased as whether this is a gateway issue or not. Uh, gateway issues are issues that the courts are supposed to decide. Examples of that are whether the an arbitration agreement is enforceable in the first instance and what issues are covered by the arbitration agreement. Um, so those issues really go to, is there an arbitration agreement? Other issues that are deemed procedural go to how the arbitration is going to proceed. Those issues are deemed for the arbitrator. The gateway issues are deemed to be ones for the court. Okay, so then if this 
was determined to be a procedural question, obviously that would tend to, to fall more in the purview of an arbitrator rather than the court. Right. Subject to the broad rule that arbitration is a matter of contract. And of course, the parties can contract for the issue of class-wide arbitration to be decided by a court or an arbitrator as they choose. The issue here was, what if the arbitrator arbitration agreement, excuse me, says nothing express about class-wide arbitrations? Who decides whether class-wide arbitrations are permissible? And the court said uh, that's generally going to the arbitrator. Okay, then that ruling has been described as quite favorable to to employee plaintiffs like Mr. Sanquist here. Do you read it that way as being particularly favorable? And if so, why why do you say that? Because employers have generally tended to champion arbitration, and you certainly try to include arbitration clauses in, in employment contracts. So it would seem that you know more power going to an arbitrator, or the tendency to to push things into arbitration and out of the courts would be something that employers would generally be okay with speaking sort of broadly. Well, I think the decision certainly is favorable to plaintiffs who want class-wide arbitration, that issue, to be decided by arbitrators because it basically creates a default rule that unless the agreement expressly says no arbitration, or sorry, no arbitration of class-wide issues, then ordinarily that issue is going to go to the arbitrator. Why do employers or consumer companies care about this? You're certainly right that they often favor arbitration. But in the past, when they favored arbitration, it has always been in the context of individual claims, which usually, uh, admittedly, are there exceptions, but usually are not large claims. And so the employers were happy to have those claims decided in a way that they thought would be quick, efficient, and not expensive. So they were happy to go to arbitration. Their concern is that with class-wide arbitration, the arbitration will no longer be quick, efficient, or inexpensive, and coupled with the concern that those decisions by an arbitrator will be uh, essentially unreviewable, they are not happy to have this issue go to arbitrators. Sure. I think that the plaintiff here and maybe employment plaintiffs generally and, and Amici in this case have stuck on to that perhaps inconsistency where employers might tend to favor individual arbitration but then say it's not particularly well suited for class claims. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a fair criticism to be made? Is there any true disingenuous there that you know, employers like arbitration, except when it, you know, there's greater amounts of money at stake and they might stand to lose more? Or you know, are those two stances reconcilable? Well, I think it's certainly true that generally employers have not been happy to see very large claims, which is usually what a class-wide claim is, go to arbitrators for fear that they cannot get any kind of effective review of the decision, and therefore they're wholly at the mercy of the arbitrator. That may be good, it may be bad, it might even be indifferent, but when it's bad, there's nothing that can be done about it. Uh, the other thing is certainly a big reason that employers have favored individual arbitrations is because it's pretty quick, pretty cheap, pretty efficient. Class-wide arbitrations are not going to be any of those things. And so the things that employers thought they were getting, the advantages of 
arbitration, individual arbitration, go out the window if there's class-wide arbitration. Maybe burrowing in a little bit more deeply to simply the, the legal reasoning applied by the majority here, it seems relatively straightforward and somewhat persuasive. To me, as you've touched on a bit, the majority says, you know, in a contract like this where there's no clear language saying who makes the class certification decision, and also in a, a contract like this where there's a clause saying that generally any disputes and questions will be resolved by an arbitrator, and they say, well, okay, this is a, a question, this is a dispute, whether the class should be certified, that should go to the ar- arbitrator. Um, this is a 4-3 decision, so three justices were not persuaded by that logic. Do you find the logic of the majority opinion persuasive? Uh, no, I don't. I think one thing that should be recognized here is the view of the majority is the minority view in the courts. Every federal circuit court has come down the opposite way. Um, so that that alone should give one pause as to whether or not the majority is correct here. The question of who decides it comes down to what you think the role of the courts and arbitrators is here. The part of the rules that seems fairly clear is that courts decide whether something is arbitrable. That is, is the arbitration agreement enforceable? Because obviously, if it's not enforceable, then you can't compel somebody to arbitrate. And what issues or disputes are covered by the arbitration agreement. Because again, arbitration is simply a matter of contract. You could contract and say uh, disputes from us between us about contracts are arbitrable, but decisions about tort claims are not arbitrable, for example. And then whether a particular dispute fell in one category or the other would be up to the courts. It seems to me that the question of class-wide arbitration falls in the second category. That is, what does the arbitration agreement cover? What disputes? And here in particular, does it cover class-wide arbitration? Sure. For those two objections, generally the the body of the dissent here, I believe it was written by Justice Leandra Kruger. I, I think she did mention the point that you make that other courts, federal courts and state courts have held differently than the California court here. Is that largely the objections that she raised as well? Well, she certainly raised that objection. Um, there were a couple other things her dissent said. One is there's a U.S. Supreme Court case called Green Tree. And in that case, a plurality of four justices held that whether an arbitration agreement provides for class-wide arbitration is for the arbitrator. Uh, Her point was that if you looked at more recent Supreme Court cases, the the, uh, majority view no longer was the view taken in Green Tree. Uh, She pointed to two Supreme Court cases in particular. One is called Stolt-Nielsen. In that case, the question before the U.S. Supreme Court was whether an arbitration agreement that says nothing about class-wide arbitration can be presumed to provide for class-wide arbitration. And there the Supreme Court said uh, quite clearly that unless there was a provision that provided for class-wide arbitration in the arbitration agreement, then without that, there could be no class-wide arbitration. And as part of that analysis, the court pointed to the fact that class-wide arbitration dramatically increased the risk to defendants. And so it followed from that, that if you're going to have parties go to class-wide arbitration, and if 
arbitration is simply a matter of contract and the parties have to agree to it and silence wasn't an agreement. She also pointed to the Supreme Court's case, Concepcion, and that case said some of the things I've been saying, which is that the principal advantages of arbitration are that it's fast, less costly, and less formal, but that class-wide arbitration was just the opposite. It was slow, it was more costly, and more formal. And therefore, she looked at those cases and said she doubted that parties would ever agree to class arbitration implicitly as distinct from explicitly because it's clear the parties want class-wide arbitration they can agree to that and that's fine so the question here really is well what if the parties don't say what they want how do you interpret the agreement when there's no express reference to class-wide arbitrations Okay, yeah, maybe a, a question more generally about the split here. It's four to three, which is the first time there's been such a split like that in the California Supreme Court since January of last year. I know the court is known for trying when it can to render unanimous decisions. So were you surprised at all to, to see that split? Is there anything to be read into it except the fact that this is just a, a pretty divisive issue? Well, I don't think I'd read anything into it other than it's an issue that has uh, divided the court's considerably. I don't think it uh, portends that the court, the California Supreme Court is going to have more 4-3 decisions or anything like that. So I don't think you, you can read too much into it. You're certainly right that the California Supreme Court um, is much, <laughs> there's much more unanimity or close to un unanimity than you see in the U.S. Supreme Court. But I think the lineup here is kind of interesting of the justices because the author of the dissent um, had generally been regarded as uh, a liberal. And I think most people would say that the majority decision was the liberal decision, not the dissent. Yeah, I was surprised to see her name uh, above the dissent in this case. It well, I think that w the way it can be explained is she's simply looking at what the U.S. Supreme Court has said and is saying, look, this is the way this is going to come out, whatever we might or might not like about it. You know, there's been a continuing um, disagreement between the U.S. Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court about arbitration. And this is just another example of it, where the California Supreme Court has taken a view that I think is considerably contrary to the view of the U.S. Supreme Court. I temper that with the fact that with Justice Scalia's death and the court being very split 4-4, we don't really know how it's going to come out. But setting that aside up in Till now, the U.S. Supreme Court has been very pro-arbitration and very contrary to what California has tried to do. Sure. Maybe spinning off that a bit, I think one case that helps illustrate that point was from a few years ago, DirecTV versus Imburgia. I think there, there was a contract by DirecTV that would, in which folks would, would waive class arbitration altogether. And the California Supreme Court struck down that contract provision as against California state law. But then, as you say, the Supreme Court disagreed and, and said the Federal Arbitration Act preempts California state law and allows a class arbitration waiver. 
So as you say, it's just sort of the next chapter and this continuing bit of tension between the California High Court and the country's High Court? Yes. Um, You know, if you look back at earlier cases like uh, Gentry, for example, and the cases, its progeny, there what the California Supreme Court said essentially was that waivers of class-wide arbitration were unconscionable under California law. And the U.S. Supreme Court in Concepcion said, no, you can't have a blanket rule that says all waivers of class-wide arbitrations are unconscionable because that defeats the policy of the Federal Arbitration Act. And that policy is to favor arbitrations and to preempt state rules that discriminated against arbitration. And there have been several other cases like that where the California Supreme Court has gone one way and the U.S. Supreme Court has overruled it. So this is just another step in that continuing disagreement over how arbitration should work. Okay. Then perhaps are we, again, waiting for the other shoe to drop here? Do you think this case will follow a a similar type trajectory where the Supreme Court will take it and reverse it as it has in in the past? I know you said there's some uncertainty because we're not sure still who the the ninth justice will be and when he or she might join the court. Well, I think in ordinary times when the U.S. Supreme Court was fully staffed, I would think this case was a very likely candidate for certiorari. It's an important issue. And there's a clear disagreement about the issue, and it's a legal issue which only the U.S. Supreme Court can definitively resolve. So I would have thought ordinarily that this would be a prime candidate, not a guaranteed candidate for cert, but a prime candidate, not guaranteed because uh, so much of the case law is the other way, but likely Now, there's the additional overlay here of the court being 4-4. I think it's going to be reluctant to take on cases where it thinks that a particular case would be decided 4-4, which is to say they wouldn't decide anything because it would be affirmed, the lower court's decision would be affirmed by an equally divided Supreme Court, leaving the issue still up in the air. So... That may well be a reason that the Supreme Court at this stage will not take this issue, but it is certainly going to take up this issue at some point. Um, As you say, this is a big case and a big issue. I'd be curious to know, um, in terms of the impact for employer defendants here, um, is the impact truly so significant, this ruling here? I mean, can't employers now just draw contracts that are not ambiguous as to this point about class arbitration, say a court must decide issues of class arbitration. And so this ruling would not be necessarily that impactful. Well, you're certainly right. The solution to this problem is to write arbitration agreements that squarely say either class-wide arbitration is allowed or class-wide arbitration isn't allowed. And this decision is going to uh, strongly encourage people who are drafting these agreements to make an express provision about this. But all that is going to do is solve the question prospectively. What it doesn't do is anything uh, retrospectively for all existing arbitration agreements. Uh, there's still the issue as to those, what or how they should be interpreted, and they're not going to be affected by later amendments or revisions. I see. So all the ones out there that that do have the same ambiguity would be subject to similar 
Right. And I think what you're going to find is if you look at most arbitration agreements, unless they were written very recently, they don't expressly say anything about class-wide arbitration. You know, no one has thought of even having a class-wide arbitration until, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe less than that, when this started becoming an issue. But up till then, no one had ever heard of a class-wide arbitration. And so the agreements, not surprisingly, didn't make any provision for that. It's never occurred to anybody that there could be a class-wide arbitration. Um, in your opinion, was was this ruling a bit of a surprise at all, considering the fact that, as you say, many other courts that have tackled this question have felt the exact opposite? I would have predicted that this case would come out the way it did because the California Supreme Court um, has uh, not been at all comfortable with the waiver of class-wide arbitrations. You know, lots of employers, consumer companies, and so on have put provisions in their arbitration agreements that say class-wide arbitration um, is prohibited. Uh, but as I said before, a lot of agreements are out of date. They didn't think of that when they were being drafted. And so this issues, you know, an open question on so many of those agreements. And the California Supreme Court has been very hostile to agreements that waive class-wide arbitration. This, I think, is another uh, symptom of that. There's also the interesting question of, well, okay, let's assume it goes to arbitrators. Are they going to be hostile or favorably disposed to interpreting an agreement to provide for class-wide arbitration? A lot of people believe, um, hard to know empirically, but a lot of people believe that arbitrators are going to be prone to find class-wide arbitration because it's in their economic self-interest to do so. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the difference between a quick and simple and cheap individual arbitration and a, a massive and expensive class arbitration case would make a big difference in terms of how much that, that mediator got paid. That's, that's, that's for sure. Right. Okay, then, so Sanquist here, pending the decision, like you say, this case may go forward, but for employment lawyers more generally, what are the most significant impacts now that Sanquist has been ruled upon by the, the state high court? Well, I think the most important impact is when you write your arbitration agreement, make it clear what is being provided as to class-wide arbitrations, because as you suggested before, on a prospective basis, that is going to eliminate the issue. Doesn't it's not going to really matter who decides it if you write a clear provision that says class-wide arbitration is provided for or it is not allowed. So that's the most important thing that can be done going forward is to resolve this by clear and express language. As to the existing agreements, there are going to be continuing fights about how do you interpret ambiguous agreements and just how much of an indication is needed that class-wide arbitration is permissible before a judge or arbitrator can find that class-wide arbitration should be ordered. Okay. Well, it's certainly a very fascinating issue and one that's of great importance for employment lawyers. And Mr. Rex Heinke, thanks very much for being on the podcast to discuss it with us. I appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me. Thanks so much.
One more time, that was Rex Heinke of Aiken Gump. We'll move now to my discussion with Ben Foyer. We're very pleased to be joined now once again by Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group, a boutique appellate law firm in San Francisco comprising about 10 attorneys. Ben's a, a very wonderful guest to have on for previewing appellate law cases as he's devoted his entire career to appellate law. He serves as lead appellate counsel in all types of California and federal appeals and writs. Earlier in his career, he also served as a clerk for Judge Carlos Bea on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Ben's the founder and longtime chair of the appellate section of the Bar Association of San Francisco's Barristers Club. And in 2013, that association awarded him with the Outstanding Barristers Award, an award given to one attorney each year. Not least of all, he contributes regularly to the Daily Journal, both singly himself and with other members of his firm under the appellation Appellate Zealots. Mr. Ford, thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you so much, Brian. The case that we're previewing today is Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia Incorporated versus Pauly. And uh, like some of the other cases we previewed, this one presents with what at first glance might seem like a bit of a trivial dispute. We're talking about uh, a fight over playground equipment. The school here in question, uh, a religious school in Missouri, sought to receive state funding for recycled shredded tires to create a soft landing on their playground. Um, but obviously, this is more than just a, a playground fight, Ben. The, there are a lot of serious and imposing issues, some striking right at the, the bedrock of American democracy, issues like the separation of, of church and state. So can you can you tell me what issues are exactly at, at play here? Yeah, um, this case is a really interesting one that comes out of a set of facts that at first glance seem somewhat mundane. Uh, there's a church in Columbia, Missouri called Trinity Lutheran Church. It has a school for small children, uh, and there's a playground on the church grounds. And the school children use the playground during the day, and neighborhood children use the playground at night. And this playground has gravel beads on the, uh, the, the ground of the playground. And anyone who grew up any time before the 2000s, say, will know what these beads are. These are little rock pellets, and if you, you fall, you kind of scrape your knee, but it's better than landing on pavement. Sure. Nowadays, anyone with small children or who's been to a playground for any reason will have noticed that they put a different type of rubber material down as the bottom uh, of these playgrounds. It's a little bit bouncy. The kids fall, and they don't even necessarily scrape their knees. The pampered youth of today... Um, <laughs> And Trinity applied for a grant from the state of Missouri to replace its gravel flooring to its playground with this newer rubber substance. In Missouri, this substance, this rubber is made out of recycled tires. And the state has set up a program whereby applicants who have a surface that could use this rubber tire material instead of something there that's, that's uh, more dangerous or, or less effective, can apply, describe the kind of projects they're trying to build, and then the state will award some of them with a grant, a cash grant, to go out and pay for the replacement of the stone gravel playground base with the bouncy rubber playground base. And this is what... Trinity did. They applied for this grant, and 
even though not everybody who applies for the grant gets one of these grants, there were 44 applicants the year Trinity applied, uh, 14 of them were awarded grants. Trinity ranked number five on there. So Trinity would have qualified for a grant under this program, but Trinity didn't get the grant. In the state of Missouri, like a number of other states, the Constitution has a prohibition against using any funds from the state treasury to support directly or indirectly a church or religious organization. There's also a provision that says the state can't discriminate against any church or religious organization, but the operative provision of, of the Missouri Constitution here, which was in Article 1, Section 7 of, of that state's constitution, says that no money from the Treasury can be used to support churches. So the Missouri Department of Natural Resources, which is the administrative agency that runs this playground replacement program, ended up denying Trinity's application. And they told Trinity that the reason they denied the application is because Trinity is a church and because the Missouri Constitution prohibits the disbursement of treasury funds directly or indirectly to support a church. So Trinity ended up filing a federal lawsuit in which it alleged that this decision by the state of Missouri violated its rights under the United States Constitution. Could you tell me a bit more specifically in what ways the school claimed that the Department of Natural Resources, the state of Missouri, had violated their constitutional rights? I believe they brought a couple of different arguments, including a free exercise claim and an equal protection claim. And then, as I understand, they, these claims were unsuccessful in both the district and appellate courts. Could you tell me why those courts held for the state in those actions? Trinity Church brought a actually brought a number of claims, but the two primary claims that Trinity brought that are really part of the Supreme Court's review are a claim that the decision by the state to deny it access to this grant money for a purely secular purpose. That is, Trinity says, hey, look, we're not using this money to go out and preach or to print Bibles or to build up our church building itself. We're just looking to replace a dangerous part of a playground with a less dangerous part of the playground so kids who use that playground don't get hurt, right? There's nothing, according to Trinity, there's nothing religious about that. So Trinity's arguing that the denial of the grant money amounts to an interference with its right of free exercise of religion as protected by the First Amendment. They're essentially arguing that the Missouri Constitution, in this case, it's, a, it's what's called an as-applied challenge. That is, the argument is not that state money can be used by churches or should be able to be used by churches in, for any reason. The argument is that here, with this very secular or allegedly secular purpose to the grant and to Trinity's use of this money, that the constitutional provision in Missouri is unconstitutional in this in this situation. But the argument is that this provision, constitutional provision in this context, amounts to a special burden on their religion that only applies to them by virtue of the fact that they are a religious organization, even though the activity is secular and unrelated to religion. 
So they say that's a violation of their First Amendment right to free exercise. Trinity also argues that the decision here is a violation of their equal protection rights, that they're being specially classified as a religion and being singled out because they are religious and essentially being punished for, or, or at least otherwise being denied a benefit they would otherwise receive because they're a member of that group, that class of religious organizations. The district court rejected both of those arguments, granted a motion to dismiss, and ruled that existing Supreme Court precedent precluded these arguments. And the Supreme Court precedent the district court was referring to was a case called Locke against Davey in the early 2000s. And this was a case in which Washington State had a scholarship program for students. And the state constitution in Washington also had a provision similar to that in Missouri, prohibiting funds for the use of state funds for religious purposes. And a student, a pastor-to-be, applied for a grant so that he could take ministerial studies at one of the universities in Washington. And the agency that oversaw the scholarship denied that request. The Supreme Court ultimately upheld that agency's decision. The Supreme Court basically said that the, the history of the prohibition on establishment of religion, which is another part of the First Amendment that prohibits Congress or the states from establishing religion, that the history of that provision was so focused on the fear that governments would directly or indirectly fund the church or a church, that states are allowed to discriminate against religious uses of state subsidies, like funding a scholarship to study a religious message or practice. Now here, the tr Trinity says, wait a minute, this Locke against Davy case shouldn't apply to us because that case was focused on the use of state funds for a religious purpose. But here, we're just looking to fix up the playground. And this playground is used by students in a non-religious way. They go out and play when they're taking breaks from their classes. And it's used by neighborhood kids with nothing to do with the church at, at night. But that was the basis for the trial court's ruling, the district court. And that decision was affirmed by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. There was an en banc petition uh, after the affirmance by the Eighth Circuit. And the Eighth Circuit split. There are 10 judges on the Eighth Circuit, five uh, favored granting an en banc rehearing, five favored not granting en banc rehearing, uh, which, which allowed the judgment to be affirmed. But that shows that there was a real split among the Eighth Circuit judges as to how this case would come out or should come out. Uh, and, and then the U.S. Supreme Court has granted cert. Uh, and so the Supreme Court is going to be looking at this exact question. Can a state discriminate against a church that is seeking otherwise neutral state funds, state funds that have nothing to do with religion, to use them for a purpose that 
at least Trinity argues, has nothing to do with religion, a purely secular purpose? Or is that a violation of Trinity's rights under the First Amendment and the Fifth Amendment incorporated through the 14th Amendment to free exercise of religion and equal protection of the law? I think that both of these arguments, like most arguments, have have their weaknesses, and, and we'll get more into those in a moment. But I'd be curious here, between the two, the free exercise and the equal protection clause, uh, which do you think has more merit and more of a chance here before the U.S. Supreme Court to prevail? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> it's, it's obviously not a, an easy case. The Eighth Circuit split, the split of the judges 5-5 on the Eighth Circuit, um, really kind of underscores the complexity of the case. There are a number of moving parts. For example, one question that's going to be important to the Supreme Court is the history of Missouri's prohibition on the use of state funds for religious purposes to support a church. The constitutional provision at issue, this Article I, Section 7 of the Missouri Constitution, was originally adopted in the late 1800s, during a time of substantial industrialization and development of American society after the Civil War. One of the tensions that arose during that time was religious. The country had just gone through this massive strife over race, and now religion came much more into focus, particularly as immigration increased after the war. There developed substantial anti-Catholic bias, uh, really throughout much of the United States. Uh, the United States was primarily Protestant at the time, and the tensions between Catholics, Protestants, and other groups, particularly secularists, really found their footing in controversies over public schooling, which was really becoming an important part of people's lives for the first time in many places. And there was a real debate in the country at the time, whether public schools should be purely secular, should be somewhat religious, and if they were to be religious, should the students be learning prayers? And if they are learning prayers, should they be learning Catholic prayers, Protestant prayers? What kind of prayers should they be learning? And so these, so these tensions sort of bubbled to the fore, and out of it, in many states, there was a, a proposal at the federal level that failed, but many states passed constitutional amendments essentially prohibiting the use of state funds to, to support directly or indirectly church and religious uses to prevent groups from using the school system as a way to teach often minority viewpoint prayers, like Catholic prayers. Uh, so there was this undertone of anti-Catholic bias that was part of the adoption of this constitutional provision, which was reaffirmed after World War II in Missouri, when anti-Catholic bias was no longer such a major issue. But its original gestation came in the context of religious disagreement. That issue may be especially pertinent in this case, because five justices on the U.S. Supreme Court, remember, are in fact Roman Catholic. And the remaining three justices are Jewish, another group that certainly understands the concept of religious discrimination. So there's some question as to whether that history 
may play a particular role in the way the court analyzes these laws. Certainly, Justice Scalia was Roman Catholic and a very active member of the Roman Catholic faith, and he uh, surely would have had strong views on laws that may have had a history of anti-Catholic bias. But your, your earlier question, which was, what do I see the court perhaps doing here, is, of course, the key, the key question. Um, I think I, at least, have a conceptual problem with the free exercise argument. And the conceptual problem is, if the use of money is purely for a, a non-religious secular purpose, how can the denial of money for that purely non-religious secular purpose impinge on the group's free exercise of religion? That is, the very fact that it's a secular goal or a secular use of funds, to me, undermines the idea that there's interference with religion. That is, if there's government interference with secular activities by a church, that to me is, is not a free exercise problem, at least as, as I see it, uh, because it's not part of the religious practice and the exercise of the religion. Um, there are certainly many churches that engage in substantial non-religious business endeavors. The Church of Scientology, for example, owns numerous businesses that engage in, or at least arguably engage in secular activities that are not part of the, the religious practice. And there are, there are many other churches that, that do that as well. Uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The IRS may treat some of those activities differently for tax purposes. That is, at least the tax code allows uh, the government to treat secular activities differently for taxation purposes than church activities, and there's Supreme Court precedent in support of that as well. So to me, the, the, that, the, the, the argument is conceptually circular and therefore flawed. The other argument, the equal protection argument, may have more purchase. The idea that treating religion and religious organizations as a whole separately from non-religious organizations and in a way that is harmful to them in some way compared to what they would obtain if they were not a religious organization, if they were not a member of this class of religious organizations, is somewhat within the conceptual history of the Equal Protection Clause. Now, historically, there really isn't very much law in which at least the Supreme Court has found the treatment of a religious group to violate the Equal Protection Clause. But in theory, it's possible. That said, the fact that states adopted these constitutional provisions around the end of the Civil War, when the 14th Amendment came into effect, the 14th Amendment was the amendment that applied the Federal Equal Protection Clause to the states. The fact that the, the, these amendments were passed around the same time suggests that at least the original understanding of the folks who voted, voted on and ratified the uh, 14th Amendment was that 
even if it would not allow discrimination by the state against one um, religious sect or religious group as opposed to another, that is, that the state couldn't choose to fund Protest, uh, a, a Protestant church and not choose to fund a Catholic church, for example, that there was a different view of the state generally going out of its way to do anything to support religion. Now, that may have come from the anti-Catholic bias discussed earlier, or it may come from a general view that state involvement in religion in terms of financial support of any kind raised too many thorny issues that the states should just stay out of it. But the fact that so many states were adopting these constitutional provisions around the same time suggests they did not understand that the 14th Amendment would prohibit this kind of practice. So there may be some serious problems with the Equal Protection Clause argument as well. The goal, I think it's important to understand also that the goal of Trinity here is to have the court recognize that this type of prohibition that they have in Missouri is a violation of its, or a potential violation at least, of its First Amendment rights, so that review of the law is for strict scrutiny. When challenges are made to regulations that impact fundamental constitutional rights, courts apply varying levels of scrutiny to those statutes or regulations or actions. With regard to some constitutional rights, for example, uh, the right to have access to uh, uh, the right to an abortion, the courts review regulations that limit the right to access an abortion or, or affect the, the ability to access an abortion for intermediate scrutiny. When a regulation impacts a free speech right, the right to go out and, and say speak your mind, essentially, courts will review those laws for strict scrutiny. They look very carefully. Uh, and when someone is challenging just a general law that doesn't impact any fundamental right, the Constitution requires only that the government have a rational basis for enacting the rule. That is, that it's just not arbitrary or capricious. Here, the lower courts reviewed this regulation for a rational basis. They said, there, this does not impact the free exercise clause. This doesn't raise an equal protection violation because there's no impact to your right to free exercise. So you're not really being treated differently. You're just being treated like anyone else who has a secular issue. Um, uh, but it happens to be a church. And the uh, court said that this law, given the history of concern about establishment of religion and state funding of religion, meets the rational basis test. That is, the state clearly has a rational basis for this law. Trinity would like the courts to apply strict scrutiny to the law. Trinity would like the courts to recognize that this constitutional provision impacts its fundamental rights of free exercise and equal protection, and that therefore the government should need to show a compelling interest 
that its regulation is narrowly tailored to accomplish that goal and that that, it, that it's taken a look at that issue and um, has, can convince a court that it really has narrowly tailored this regulation to accomplish a compelling governmental interest. And if it can't do that, if the state can't do that, then the law at least can't be applied in this context. Now, even if Trinity prevails on that question, that is, that strict scrutiny should apply to its pre-exercise argument, that does not necessarily mean it will win. The history of the Establishment Clause is pretty significant in the nation's past. In many ways, the nation's founding is at least a partial response to state control over religion uh, and limitations on the ability of different splinter groups uh, uh, away from orthodox versions of, of a certain kind of faith to be able to do what it is they just want to do. And it may well be that even if strict scrutiny applies to this type of claim, even if this is a free exercise claim, that the state has still shown that it has a, it is accomplishing a compelling governmental interest in preventing state monies from flowing to a church. Another thing to remember, of course, is that these are cash grants. The entity receiving the grant essentially has to promise that it's using the grant money for the purpose that it said it would use the grant money for. But what happens if say there's some money left over or say the church gets a sudden hole in its roof and if it doesn't fix the hole in its roof, the whole church is going to flood. It would be very difficult to police churches to ensure that they are using these funds for the, the purely secular purpose that they were initially awarded. So the state may well have concerns that are so substantial that a law that essentially asserts a blanket prohibition on state funds being given to churches still meets the strict scrutiny standard. We cited some, some weaknesses there and, and some Supreme Court precedent that the, the lower courts used to rule against Trinity. But obviously, Trinity and, and their Amici have some precedent of their own that support their position. Could you tell me a bit about some cases that support their side? Yeah, Trinity highlights a case, probably the strongest case that I think it highlights, is a case called McDaniel against Patty. And that was a case, that was, that was a case from a while back. But the case, the, the Supreme Court held there that it's a violation of the First Amendment for a state to prevent, as a law, ministers and priests from serving as political delegates to various uh, uh, conventions, uh, you know, legislative conventions. And the court essentially held in that case that discriminating against the ministers simply on the basis of the fact that they have religious belief when they want to engage in this 
very important political process and have otherwise been selected by their peers to engage in this very important political process violates the Constitution. And so there's certainly precedent that could be analogous to a case like this. There are also a number of Supreme Court justices who have sort of made clear that in their view, states, generally speaking, are not prohibited by at least the federal constitution in any way. And perhaps the federal constitution protects the rights of religion, but that states are not prohibited by the federal constitution from funding or otherwise supporting religion. Justice Thomas, for example, has made comments that suggest that he believes that at least at the state level, there isn't necessarily a constitutional, a federal constitutional violation if a state in fact, chooses an official religion. Uh, although I'd point out that Justice Thomas is probably the only justice on the Supreme Court uh, currently who, who has that view. But there's certainly a, a sense among some of the conservative members of the Supreme Court that treating religion in a way that discriminates against it in favor of secularism is quite possibly a constitutional problem. So there, there are probably, and, and there were at least four justices who granted cert in this case, um, you know, keep in mind, uh, um, along with the five judges on the Eighth Circuit who thought that the case should be reheard on bonk. So there's certainly going to be a, a viewpoint um, that, I mean, it's certainly this case could go either way. Let me put it that way. The fact that Justice Scalia is no longer on the court could make a difference. Justice Scalia, a very strong defender of religious liberty. It's hard to say what Justice, potentially Justice Garland, if, just, if, if Judge Garland is, is uh, confirmed at any point by the Senate or even given a, a vote, uh, what, what his position on something like this would be. But there do seem to be potential problems with preventing states from discriminating against religions in, in these types of situations, um, sort of for, for the reasons discussed. You know, another perfectly reasonable argument is that um, even though Trinity argues that the purpose of fixing up its playground is purely secular, one of the groups that certainly benefits are m members of the church who have children who attend the school in the church that utilizes the playground during the day. So there is an indirect benefit out there to the church from state coffers. Um, so, you know, given, given the originalist problem with state funding of churches and given the concept of a that this is a cash grant essentially to a church from a state um i think that there are certainly many justices on the court who will have pause before they sign on to reversing the eighth circuit's decision i think uh, one argument that it seems like the state has put a bit of stock in is is the fact that, as you touched on, these subsidies aren't generally available to all the schools that seek them. There's an application process, and roughly a third of schools that apply will receive them. So 
it's not as though every school but Trinity is is getting these grants. Um, how much do you think that that matters in the analysis here? Well, the real question I think would be, could any school similarly situated receive this grant, right? And Trinity's argument is, yeah, we're just looking for, you know, uh, to fix up the playground. Any religiously affiliated school that has a playground and is looking for to participate in this grant process so it can fund the replacement of dangerous gravel with rubber tires, or it's not tires, it's, it's, it's very nicely done, but former tires, you know, there's a benefit to recycling, but there's certainly a benefit to um, uh, safety, and that's not a, a religious purpose, and that any school that that's similarly uh, situated should be able to at least apply for a grant and be evaluated on criteria that have nothing to do with religion. The criteria for, for giving these grants uh, looks at how how thoroughly planned the replacement process is, whether it's been budgeted out, whether they have talked to people who can actually do the work, uh, and, and what the proposal is and what the purpose is in the sense of who would be aided by it. But it doesn't look to religion, certainly, and certainly doesn't say, oh, well, are you Lutheran, therefore you can't have this, but if you're Catholic, you sure can. Um, and I think that would be really where that problem would come up. The question is generally equal access, not equal treatment in a case like this, right? Because if no one else needs the rubber refilling, because no, no other churches have playgrounds with this purpose, then, you know, who cares, <laughs> in, in a way, is, is kind of what, what the argument would be. You touched on the level of scrutiny a little bit. I, I think you hinted at the fact that Typically, in a, an equal protection claim, uh, regulations that might treat different groups differently only seem to receive strict scrutiny when their regulations referring to, I think, race and maybe national origin are the ones that, that seem to, to attract strict scrutiny by the courts and, and less so regulations that might treat religion or religious groups differently. So, um, I mean, how likely do you think it is that the petitioners here could get the court to apply that level of scrutiny, if it seems like it's not traditionally an area where such heightened scrutiny is applied. Yeah, you know, most of the, the equal protection cases involve race, uh, to a certain degree gender. Um, the, the reason it hasn't really come up in religious contexts is because the other provisions of the First Amendment tend to be the focus of r- religious liberty. That is the right of free exercise, an individual who's being denied his or her right of free exercise or, or an organization that's being denied that the right of free exercise to do what they, what their religion commands or uh, a, a, an individual religious organization opposing some government support of religion in some way or another in the alleged to be in violation of the establishment clause. There really haven't been very many cases in which the courts have adjudicated an equal protection question, especially one between sort of religion itself and non-religion itself. Um, is, it, is it an equal protection violation to treat religion itself differently than non-religion itself? Um, the, the case I mentioned earlier involving ministers um, you know, again, focused on um, 
you know, free exercise on the limitations of the minister's ability to participate in the process under the free exercise clause. If they if they wanted to freely exercise their religion, you couldn't be uh, a politician and or at least part of this delegate process. And um, that that's where the constitutional problem arose. But that doesn't mean that the court wouldn't conclude that there is an equal protection violation here. Uh, it simply hasn't really done so in a similar situation in the past. So I'm not sure that the fact that it hasn't been done much before necessarily means it won't be done in the future. We sort of talked about it where you say, you know, when the if there's a hole in the roof, then these funds could just go to that. Well, even if, you know, now these funds go to the playground, well, that obviously frees up other money for things like Bibles and such. But I, I'm not sure how much was made about that in the filings. Well, I mean, it's a very, it's a very interesting point. I mean, you're, yeah. you're absolutely, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I mean, that's, you're absolutely right, Brian. The, um, you know, again, to the extent there is an indirect effect on, to benefit the, the church, whether it's giving its students a safer place to play, perhaps that makes its school more attractive to uh, for parents who want to send their kids to that school and therefore allows the church to better uh, spread its message to those children and their parents, or because it frees up other funds that, that perhaps the, the, the church would pay for this, these repairs itself, uh, but now can buy more Bibles or send missionaries out because the funds have come from the state to pay for this. Those are both, uh, I think, very valid policy concerns and show the kind of slippery slope that finding in Trinity's favor could open up. Uh, there would be, you know, is the state going to be auditing a church that accepts this kind of benefit? That may raise other different establishment clause type problems. Um, so you're 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 dead on right. There are policy issues that that, that come up um, if the court decides to reverse. Okay, maybe another policy issue: the the petitioner's Trinity contends that if. The U.S. Supreme Court rules against it in this case that there could be other nonprofit programs that have some religious affiliation that tend to receive government funds, like battered women's shelters or, or soup kitchens, that you know certainly that serve a social benefit, and that as a result of an adverse ruling against Trinity could could have a hard time or could be more subject to states keeping any sort of funds from them because of any religious affiliation they might have. You know, I think probably not. I think that's probably not a very powerful policy argument. And the reason is this. The question before the Supreme Court is whether states may prohibit the disbursement of funds to a religious organization for a purely secular purpose. It's not a question whether the state is required to prohibit funds to religious organizations in, in this way. So the fact that Missouri has a constitutional provision that prohibits Trinity Lutheran Church from accepting a grant from the state to, for example, run a soup kitchen, is ultimately a political question for the people of the state of Missouri. 
There are other states that don't have that kind of provision or perhaps that have exceptions to that kind of provision for charitable work and um, for grants from the state for charitable work. So the, you know, ultimately that's a question for the people of Missouri who may decide that the soup kitchens and other public benefits that churches offer would be better achieved with state grant funding and can vote to change that constitutional provision. And other states that currently allow for grant funding to religious organizations that use them for secular purposes like soup kitchens would not be prohibited from doing so even if the court finds against Trinity here. So I don't think that that's an overwhelmingly effective argument, at least to me. Okay. That, that sort of hints at maybe one last policy consideration here, and, and that's just the underlying idea that there's certainly some, some states' rights issues at play here. You mentioned that you know a state legislature could make the decision to um, you know, dr- draw a separation between church and state a certain way, obviously, as long as it's within the bounds of the United States Constitution. Um, I think you hinted at towards the beginning of our conversation the fact that this Missouri constitutional provision is similar to ones in many other states. Um, so it, it kind of seems like if the U.S. Supreme Court makes it a, a decision that, at least as applied, this provision is unconstitutional, that I don't know, that would be a pretty far-reaching ruling and would potentially have some reverberations in, in lots of different states. You know, yes and no, I think. Um, you know, I, wouldn't, I don't want to overstate how uh, the, the ultimate effect of this, the ruling. It certainly could open up state grant funding to churches for secular purposes if the court rules in favor of Trinity. But I don't know that it's going to have earth-shattering consequences for Trinity if it rules against Trinity or uh, um, that it will necessarily have earth-shattering consequences for the general separation of church and state if the court rules uh, against it. Uh, But it certainly could affect the way the law develops, and it certainly could affect other situations in which churches engage in significant secular activities that could be receptive to state funding. One example I can think of is church-run hospitals, uh, which are common in some states and not others. Uh, And one reason they are common in some states and not others is that some states don't allow for state grant funding to church-run hospitals. Um, so th- there certainly could be effects. Uh, it, you know, if churches can open up hospitals in some communities, that can be good and it can be problematic. It can cause uh, problematic uh, uh, competition or, or um, could divide markets in ways that prevent hospitals from staying open. There are lots of potential effects that could come out of a ruling like this down the road. But I don't know that far, a far-reaching intrusion into uh, uh, the general federalist model or the rights of states to run their internal affairs will necessarily flow. Remember, the, the 14th Amendment changed the relationship 
between the federal government and the state. Suddenly, the federal government had a role in protecting members of the state, citizens in, that are individual citizens and, and sort of corporate or entity or church citizens from the state to the extent the state would be taking actions to impinge on its own citizens' constitutional rights. At the founding, the states were the protectors of the individuals against the federal government. After the Civil War, it, it became a different situation. The, the federal government took the role of protecting individuals against the states also. It became much more of a balance. And so the idea that the Supreme Court would come in and say, you know, the, the federal constitution and the first, uh, uh, fifth and 14th amendments prohibit this state law, this, this perhaps discriminatory state law, wouldn't be outside of the traditional role that the federal government and the Supreme Court are have been playing, at least for the past 150 years uh, uh, since the 14th Amendment was ratified. That said, it, it certainly is a practical big deal to remove from state constitutions a law that has been around since the late 1800s, since the 14th Amendment was enacted, and one that certainly has arguable constitutional and policy merits on both sides. So, you know, I, I think there is certainly a states' rights issue, but I don't know that it's a states' rights issue in this case that is a greater states' rights issue than in any other case in which the Supreme Court throws out or, or otherwise uh, interprets the Constitution to prohibit certain state laws that may be common in, in multiple states. Okay. Um, well, then, I saved the hardest one, as usual, for last, to the extent you might be willing to, to take a, a guess. What do you think is the, the likeliest outcome in this case? Obviously, it's certainly hard to, hard to forecast. Yeah, you know, it's, it's especially hard. The court hasn't set an argument date for this case yet. So we don't know exactly whether we're going to have a ninth justice. This could be a case uh, where the court splits evenly um, or not, depending on, <laughs> A, how um, some of the justices, like just the, the more centrist justices, like Justice Kennedy, um, uh, um, see this case. Uh, and also what happens with Judge Garland's nomination particularly if this case is not set for oral argument until after November. Um, if Hillary Clinton wins the election, there's some thought that the lame duck Congress may then uh, attempt to confirm uh, Judge Garland or, or at least hold uh, uh, hearings and, and possibly confirm Judge Garland on the theory that he would be a more centrist nominee than they would get down the road. Um, and if that happens, and if that happens before the case is argued, that could make a difference. Um, you know, J Justice Kennedy, I mean, the most recent Establishment Clause case that I think is somewhat relevant, which was a 2014 um, uh, case in which there was a, a question about whether it violates the Establishment Clause uh, to offer prayers before public meetings. 
uh, of the city of a city council, and the court found that it was not a violation of the establishment clause to do that, based on essentially the tradition of doing so and the fact that discrimination wasn't really part of it. It was more of a uh, invocation to kind of a, a, a religious construct rather than saying this particular religion or that particular religion. But the decision in, the, in that case was five to four with Justice Scalia. So if you know that, that case were being heard today, if Town of Greece were being heard today, it would presumably have split four four and the opposite result would have occurred because the lower court's decision, the Ninth Circuit decision in that case, which had gone the other way, would have been affirmed. So it is really tough to try to predict what would happen in a contentious, complicated case like this without knowing who the judges <laughs> are who are going to be deciding it. Sure. Okay, well... I think we'll leave it there and certainly will be one to watch in the October term 2016. Ben Foyer, chairman of the California Appellate Law Group. Thanks so much for previewing it with us on the podcast. I really appreciate all your, your thoughtful insights. Thank you, Brian. that, our program for August 19th, 2016, is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity once more to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Ben Foyer and Mr. Rex Heinke. I'd certainly like to also thank you, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. And I have some folks to thank here on the production staff, including Ellen Ireland, Nick Sonnenberg, Dominic Fricasa, and of course, our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.